A big thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. I personally have loved using the easy-to-navigate format of Podcorn's website to find brands that are willing to partner with our podcast. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you at every step to ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when Podcorn monetizes. Click the link in my show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In the early morning of June 16th, 2009, a sea fog hovered over Ross's Point Beach in Sligo Town, County Sligo, Ireland. It had just begun to lift a little after 6 a.m. when Arthur Kinsella and his son, Brian, drove into the beach's car park after a short drive from their home in Cartran. Brian Kinsella was training for a triathlon, so he raced ahead of his father across the sand, eager to dive into the waters of the Atlantic and start swimming. The tide was out that morning, and as Arthur Kinsella stepped onto the beach, he caught sight of something strange to his right. He knew Ross's Point Beach well because he walked along the shore almost every morning. Curious, he walked closer to the unfamiliar object not far from the slipway close to Ross. With a gasp, Arthur Kinsella realized it was the body of a man who appeared to have drowned and was lying face downwards on the sand. Kinsella called to his son to come back from the water. The fog had almost completely lifted by then, and he noted that there were no footprints anywhere around the body, which appeared to have washed up. According to the Irish Times, the man looked to be about 65, and when Kinsella placed his hand on the corpse's ankle, it was marble cold. Seven kilometers from Ross's point, Sergeant Terry McMahon was 45 minutes into his shift when the call from Arthur Kinsella came in about the body on the beach. McMahon dispatched a car and picked up a blue tarp on his way in order to cover up the body. McMahon arrived with the tarp about 10 minutes after his colleagues who were taking statements from the Kinsellas. McMahon later recalled, it was quite obvious he was dead. A gray-haired gentleman, he looked to me like he hadn't been that long in the water. He had on a pair of purple-striped Speedo-type swimming trunks, with his underpants over the top, and a navy t-shirt tucked into them. But this was only the first of a series of strange things about the dead man on the beach. The following investigation became one of the strangest, most notorious enigmas in Ireland's history. 
Where did the man on the beach come from? Why was he there that day? Maybe most importantly, who was the dead man found in Sligo that day? Stay with me as we explore the mysterious identity and death of Peter Bergman, the man who never was. I'm Jaden McKell, and you're listening to Straight Up Enigmas. Listeners, if you enjoy the show, it would be super amazing if you could head over to Apple Music, tap the subscribe button, and leave a review. It really helps out our podcast. Connect with us on social media where we post each episode as it airs. We're proud to be a member of the Straight Up Strange Network. Follow the network's Facebook page at Straight Up Strange and check out our discussion forum, The Strange Room, to enter a world of knowledge curiosities, and high strangeness. I'll include a link to the group in the show notes. Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, please check us out at patreon.com slash straightupenigmas to receive bonus content, shoutouts on social media, personalized messages from me, and early access to our regularly scheduled episodes. Without further ado, let's get back to the show. On the afternoon of Friday, June 12, 2009, a tall, thin man, clean-shaven, with short gray hair and glasses, was captured on CCTV cameras at Derry Bus Station in Northern Ireland. Just as a side note here, CCTV stands for Closed Circuit Television, also known as Video Surveillance. Think of those gray security cameras you usually see at the mall or a gas station. The man was wearing a black leather jacket and carrying two black bags. One a hold-all type bag with two handles, the other a laptop type bag slung over his shoulder. He was looking for the Sligo bus, which was leaving at 4pm. Two hours and 28 minutes later, the man was seen, again on CCTV, getting off the bus in Sligo. The town's bus and train stations are both within walking distance of several hotels. The tall, thin man appears to have been unaware of this, as he got into a taxi and asked the driver to bring him to a cheap place to stay. This shows that the man was unfamiliar with the area and was probably a tourist. The taxi driver dropped the man off at Sligo City Hotel. Security cameras recorded the man, who was later said to have had a heavy Austrian or German accent, entering it at 6.52 p.m. A receptionist checked him in, and his room with breakfast cost 65 euros, or about $72 per night. The man paid for three nights in cash and was given room 705. The name he wrote in the hotel register was Peter Bergman, and he was not asked to produce any proof of identity. 
Like many public spaces, Sligo City Hotel has a number of CCTV cameras. One points over the reception desk, another at the front door through which all guests must come and go. Over the next three days, the guest in room 705 came and went several times. His movements became puzzling only when the Garda, the police service of the Republic of Ireland, later reviewed security footage from the hotel and from other businesses around the streets of the small town. It emerged that during his short stay, Peter Bergman left the hotel no fewer than 13 times, carrying a purple plastic bag that was evidently full of something. Each time he returned, he was no longer carrying anything. Like so much else about this case, it's unclear if the bag was now in a pocket of his black leather jacket or if he had a stash of them in his hotel room. Back in 2009, John O'Reilly was the detective inspector overseeing the case that was first logged as unidentified male on Ross's Point Beach. Despite the extensive network of CCTV cameras across Sligo Town a decade ago, O'Reilly reports that not a single piece of footage showed Peter Bergman disposing of the contents of this bag 13 times over. Objects don't just disappear into thin air, but according to O'Reilly, not once does it show anywhere where he may have disposed of that property. Nor is there any evidence that Peter Bergman was meeting someone in Sligo and passing these things on to that person or persons. In all the footage he's seen in, not once is he seen using a cell phone or in conversation with anyone other than transactions at the hotel reception desk and the bus station. O'Reilly believes the bag was probably full of personal effects. Clothing, maybe a passport. It's just another part of this unusual mystery. Peter Bergman arrived in Sligo on a Friday. On Saturday afternoon, he walked around the corner from the hotel to the town's main post office. He bought 10 82-cent stamps and was also given airmail stickers. Back in 2009, it cost 55 cents to post a letter in Ireland. An 82-cent stamp could take a letter anywhere in the world. This transaction was captured on CCTV. Sligo Post Office has boxes both inside and outside the building. There's a security camera over the boxes that stand near its left-hand entrance. We got the CCTV footage from the post office, O'Reilly later claimed, and when we went to look at it, it was downloaded by a staff member. For some strange technological reason, the footage hadn't actually gone on to the USB stick. And when we went back to the post office, it was gone off their system. Had we had that, it is a possibility, and I stress only a possibility, we might have been able to determine if he posted letters. But we cannot say with certainty that he actually posted 10 letters anywhere. A pattern was beginning to emerge. Peter Bergman was never caught on video surveillance disposing of any property, or mailing letters, or using a mobile phone, or meeting anyone. It's difficult not to speculate that he knew exactly where the cameras were. He didn't have a car, so he wasn't able to drive the contents of the purple bag anywhere, and not one member of the passing public ever came forward to say they had noticed him as he rid himself of the contents of a large purple plastic bag, 13 times over in daylight. 
He had training of a sort, I think, Terry McMahon speculated. So it would be easy to see that he was ex-military or ex-police. Why I think that is because, in relation to the cameras, how he was able to go about his business without people learning anything more about him. On Sunday, which would be the third and final night Peter Bergman spent in Sligo City Hotel, he again went in search of a taxi, map in hand. The man at the top of the rank outside the hotel was Gerard Higgins. I got out of my minibus to say hello, because a man with a map wishes to go somewhere, Higgins said. His passenger told him he was looking for a place to swim, and pointed to Strand Hill on the map. Higgins knew Strand Hill was a surfing beach, and instead suggested Ross's Point with its beautiful long, sandy beaches. His passenger agreed, and on Higgins' suggestion, sat up front with him. He was a bit chatty, asking if there were buses going out there, and I told him yes, about once every hour. Higgins particularly recalls this male passenger, who told him he was from Austria, because of a prominent gold tooth. Later examinations of Peter Bergman's body revealed he had a gold tooth in the upper back right of his mouth. Although his passenger with the map and the gold tooth had asked to be taken to a beach suitable for swimming, he did not actually swim. We drove around Ross's Point. I showed him the two beaches and I stopped at the car park at the entrance to the beach. He did not get out, but then said, can you bring me to the bus station? Higgins brought Peter Bergman back to Sligo and dropped him off as requested at the station. I gave him my card and told him if he wanted a taxi again to call me. He was grateful and paid me with a brand new 20 euro note. On Monday, June 15, 2009, Peter Berkman requested a late checkout of 1 p.m. When he appeared at the reception desk to return his key, he was wearing a long-sleeved pale blue shirt, black tank top, dark trousers, and black leather jacket. He was carrying three bags. The hold-all, the bag with the shoulder strap he had had when checking in, and the purple plastic bag. He checked out a little after 1 p.m. No taxi driver reported taking him the short distance to Sligo bus station, so it's assumed he walked. When he was caught on CCTV arriving at the bus station at 1.32 p.m., he no longer had the black hold-all bag. It's possible that everything that had been in it when he arrived at the hotel had since been disposed of, in bins or other places around the town, unseen either by CCTV or members of the public. The bag looked to be a soft one. When empty, it would fold up and slot easily into a bin. At 1.32pm, the manager of the little bus station cafe sold Peter Bergman a cappuccino and a toasted sandwich. He sat at one of the few tables alongside a woman he never spoke to. During the time he sat at the table, he took a piece of paper from his pocket and wrote something on it. Then, he tore it up. Like most of his other belongings, it was never found. The cafe at the station has since closed. Have you ever wondered what draws certain people to stories and places filled with mystery or fear? Why some seem to experience things just beyond the explicable, be that considered paranormal or supernatural? If you ask me, or even my grandmother, 
We'd tell you there's definitely a thread that ties these people and circumstances together. Something more than simple chance. I'm Jennifer, and I host Haunted Happenstance, a creepy and quirky little story set in a historic residence in Boston, Massachusetts. You see, I've always loved a good ghost story. And as it turns out, ghosts have always loved me too. Convenient? Maybe. Coincidence? Perhaps. But I think it's a bit more than that. Let's see if you agree. Join me and my neighbors for some truly spooky tales that can only be explained as haunted happenstance. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or everywhere you listen to your podcasts. Vincent Dunbar, the depot inspector at Sligo bus station, would later claim that Peter Bergman asked him which bay the 2.40 p.m. bus to Ross's Point left from. Although Bergman had taken a taxi out to the beach the previous day, he was now set on making the 2.40 p.m. bus. You'd think he was maybe just going to meet somebody or going on business, Dunbar said. But investigators later learned that Bergman didn't have a reservation at any kind of hotel or restaurant in the area. I learned afterwards he went for a swim, but he didn't strike me as a man that was going for a swim. The way he was dressed and what he was carrying with him. If anyone was going for a swim, you'd usually know. They'd have a towel rolled up and togs or clothing rolled up. He wasn't like that at all. He looked like a man that was on business. Peter Bergman didn't thank Vincent Dunbar for his help. He just turned and walked away, looking like a man that was stressed or in pain or not himself. That June day, the temperature reached 17 degrees Celsius or 63 degrees Fahrenheit in Sligo, and many people came to Ross's Point to swim and walk the beach. The Sligo bus dropped off its passengers at 3 p.m. at the stop outside the Yates Country Hotel. Nobody at the hotel ever recalled a tall, thin man dressed in black coming in for a coffee or food or to use the bathroom. At 4 p.m., Peter Bergman was seen on the beach with a black bag over his shoulder. At 5 p.m., he was seen near the yacht club at the far left of what local people call the First Beach. A sign close to the First Beach points to a place that has existed for more than a century, Dead Man's Point. This is the small headland that extends out toward Coney Island. Like so many tales in Sligo, it's one with a Yates connection. The story goes that a sailor from another land died as his ship was entering Sligo Bay and was left behind and buried there as the crew did not want to miss the tide. Oceans carry many superstitions. The sailor was buried with a loaf of bread and a shovel should he wake again. Inspired by the story, Jack Butler Yeats, brother of the famous Irish poet William Butler Yeats, painted Memory Harbor. The Yeats brothers often vacationed at their uncle's house at Ross's Point, Elsinore, which is now in ruins. At 9.10 p.m., Peter Bergman was seen by two women, carrying something but they weren't sure what it was. They explained how strange he looked, walking along the beach, fully dressed in dark clothing. Not only did he look out of place, they said, but out of time. 
At 9.30 p.m., he was seen on the beach by Dermot and Paula Layeth, a husband and wife who had driven from their home to watch the sunset. We were parked at the upper car park, Paula said. There was this man walking parallel to the shore. He had his trousers rolled up to his knees, and he was wearing a black jacket, and he was kind of plodding ponderously along. By that time of day, the crowds on the beach had dissipated, so the people who remained were more noticeable. At 10.30 p.m., Peter Bergman was seen by a member of the public with a plastic bag and wearing his glasses. At 11 p.m., he was again seen by a different person with a plastic bag. Ten minutes later, he was spotted, still wearing his glasses, sitting on one of the benches that overlook the first beach. The final sighting of Peter Bergman while he was alive was by a woman at 11.50 p.m. He was carrying a plastic bag and walking along by the edge of the incoming ocean. High tide was to arrive within half an hour. At 8 a.m. on June 16th, the man found on the beach near Dead Man's Point was pronounced dead at the scene by Dr. Valerie McGowan. His body was taken to Sligo University Hospital to await an autopsy the following day. Terry McMahon and his colleagues from Sligo Garda Station remained on Ross's Point Beach, searching for the rest of the clothes and footwear that had clearly been discarded somewhere. They discovered a pile of clothes on a rock on the beach, clothes that matched the description of what witnesses were to later say they had seen the solitary, tall, thin man wearing the previous day. Clothing that no other swimmer ever came to reclaim. It was as if he had taken off his shoes, and then taken off his socks, and then put his socks into his shoes, and then his trousers. There was also a kind of black v-neck sweater, and they were all neatly folded one on top of the other. The clothes had had their labels cut out, as had the three items of clothing the dead man was found wearing, although the name of some of the brands remained. The clothing and items in the pockets that were found on Ross's Point Beach that morning are still in storage at Sligo Garda Station in a large cardboard box with a label on the lid that reads, Clothing slash personal items of unidentified body found at Ross's Point on 1606 2009. Peter Bergman was found wearing a navy t-shirt, a pair of navy underpants, a pair of speedo-type swimming trunks with pink and purple stripes, and a waterproof quartz watch found on his left wrist. Black leather shoes size 44, manufactured in 2002 in Germany, dark socks, a black leather jacket, navy chino trousers, a black sleeveless sweater, and a black leather belt were all the items found on the rocks. In his pockets were all of the following, 140 euros in notes and 9 euros in coins in an envelope, a packet of tissues, 55 milligrams of aspirin tablets made by Bayer, manufactured in the Czech Republic and distributed in Germany, Hansaplast sticking plasters, a bar of hotel soap in an unopened blue plastic wrapper printed with mild soap hotel care. When later investigated, the bar of soap was not of a brand made or stocked in any hotels in Ireland. Not found among the possessions were Peter Bergman's glasses, the 10 cent stamps he had bought in the post office, the long-sleeved blue shirt he was wearing when he left the Sligo City Hotel, 
the black shoulder bag and the purple plastic bag. There was also no ID of any kind. He had not been asked for any when he checked in at the hotel. Although the man who gave his name as Peter Bergman was not asked for ID at the hotel, he did have to fill in his details on its guest register. The home address he gave was Einstetterns 15 Vienna, Austria 4472. The only problem? This address didn't exist. Or at least, no one was living on the property at Einstetterns 15. It was a vacant lot. And Austria does have a postal code system, in operation since 1966, using combinations of four digits. But Vienna's codes run only from 1000 to 1901. The address Peter Bergman gave was completely false. He ended his surname in the register with two N's, but the usual spelling in German is with one N. Clive Kilgallen conducted the autopsy on Peter Bergman on Wednesday, June 17, 2009 at Sligo University Hospital. Its results, which were not made public until the inquest on April 14, 2010, contained two unexpected pieces of information. Even though the dead man had been found washed up on the Ross's Point Beach, the pathologist found no sign of classical saltwater drowning. All the evidence had seemed to point towards a man who waited until dark to go swimming, maybe with the intention of never returning. But he hadn't died by drowning. Peter Bergman had had terminal prostate cancer. It was so advanced that Kilgallen believed he could not have been unaware of his illness. It had spread to his bones, chest, and lungs. Kilgallen estimated the prognosis was weeks at most. The cause of death was given as acute cardiac arrest or a heart attack. There was a standard toxicology report, but as usual, it didn't test for a range of illegal substances. By the time the inquest came around, the man known as Peter Bergman had been buried in an unmarked grave in Sligo Cemetery. When mid-June turned into late June in 2009, the investigators and officers covering the case had gradually realized two things. One was that nobody was coming forward looking for their missing family member or friend. The second realization took a little longer, that the man found dead on the beach had given a false name and address, that he had gone out of his way to conceal his identity, and that he appeared to have planned to disappear at sea in Sligo a plan that the tides, or fate, or unknown circumstances had prevented. Once it became evident that Peter Bergman was not the dead man's real name, it was clear this was a very different kind of investigative challenge for the Sligo Guardi and their international colleagues at Interpol. It was, for example, impossible to find out how he arrived in Ireland and where he entered the country. The name he gave did not appear on any passenger manifest, and for foot passengers on ferries from Britain, there were no identity checks. Another strange part of the investigation was that the Irish Guardi had Bergman's DNA and fingerprints, which were circulated to all police forces, but they didn't match with any other known persons in Europe, South America, or America. 
Dozens and dozens of folders in boxes held at Sligo Garda Station detail the thousands of hours spent on this case, trying to establish the true identity of the man who called himself Peter Bergman. At one point, ten people were working on the case. There are clear images of his face, both alive and dead, a face no one has claimed to know. The case will remain open until the day, if it ever comes, when Peter Bergman is finally identified. He didn't just drop out of the clear blue sky, though it kind of feels that way. Nobody gets to be close to 60 without gaining friends, colleagues, neighbors, and acquaintances along the way, let alone a family. At the very least, he was someone's son. In my personal opinion, the entire scenario seems like it was deliberately planned. Whoever this man was, he knew exactly what he was doing, how he was going to do it, and why. So many questions remain about Peter Berkman and the choices he made at the end of his life. Why Sligo? Why dispose of all of his belongings? Why give a false name and address? Did he ever send those 10 letters, and if so, who were they to? Did he intend to die by drowning? How did he get a heart attack? Will anyone who knew him ever come forward? Will this forever remain an unsolved mystery? What do you think? Find us on Instagram at Straight Up Enigmas or Twitter at Straight Enigmas and let us know. You can also contact us through email at straightupenigmas at gmail.com or through our website, straightupenigmas.home.blog. If you like the show, please remember to hop onto Apple Music to give us a five-star rating. It really helps the podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you on our next episode of Straight Up Enigmas.